Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Military History. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and my regular gig on the network is as one of the hosts of New Books in Genocide Studies. But I occasionally return to my roots in European military history, and I'm doing that today uh, as guest host on New Books in Military History. And I'm thrilled to welcome Richard Overy to the show. Many of you will know of Richard's work. He's written or edited more than a dozen books, written many more articles, all focusing or most focusing in one way or the other, a conflict in the first half of the 20th century. His new book is a magisterial examination of the Second World War that I think will immediately become one of the standard treatments of that conflict. So I'm looking forward to talking with him about it. And so Richard, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books in Military History. Thanks very much. So Richard, I always start by asking people to introduce yourself. So maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about yourselves and, and in particular, how you became in the inter, uh, interested in the history of violence. Well, it's really an accidental interest, I think. Um, when I wanted to do a doctorate at Cambridge many years ago, uh, I was looking to do something on the Third Reich um, and something on the Third Reich economy. But the only documents I could find that hadn't really been used were on German air power. And that was an entry, if you like, into you know, academic work on a military subject. Um, but of course, for anybody of my generation, I was born just after the Second World War. The Second World War hung over us like a shadow in the 50s and 60s. You know, it was difficult for a child growing up not to know something about the Second World War, not to be curious about it. And I think what really attracted me to it was not, of course, just German aircraft production, um, but really that the Second World War is such a cataclysmic event. Um, it, you know, it raises huge historical questions and requires broad historical answers. And I've I've always been interested in in that kind of history, you know, where there are really important things to be discussed, to be thought about, to be argued over. Uh, and I think that's what brought me to the Second World War. I'm struck by something that you said, which maybe in a, in a different structure for the interview is a question that would come at the end, but I think it makes sense as a response. Um, I'm particularly interested in my work in the Holocaust and, and, and mass violence. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion and you might even say angst in that community about the way in which interest in the study of the Holocaust may diminish with the passing of people who experienced it or or were born immediately after it. I'm wondering about your sense of the memory of the Second World War. As the participants pass away, um, how is that likely to affect uh, historical and popular interest in the study of the conflict? Well, I don't think it will, actually. I mean, I think that uh, this is a, an event uh, so great that you know it will linger on in the popular and public memory you know, for centuries. A bit like Napoleon, because I mean, you know, the impact from the French Revolution and the Pionic Wars has gone on for for a long time after the end in 1815. Um, also, as I've said before, it raises such large questions, such important issues, not just about military competence, about international politics and so on, but moral questions, of course, which, you know, relate to the Holocaust, to other crimes committed during the Second World War. These are things we're not going to easily forget. And I'm very struck by the extent to which, among my students, for example, you know, young people are interested in this subject. They want to you know, find answers. They want things explained which seem to them almost inexplicable. 
And I think that's going to take a long time before that kind of interest dies out. Um, I also think, you know, it, we don't learn lessons from history very well, but if there are any lessons to be presented, you know, they're there in the Second World War, anything you want, you know, to try and learn about. Why, why write this kind of, I mean, no book can be comprehensive, but this approaches it. This kind of comprehensive survey, why, why this book right now? Well, I mean, I've been uh, contracted to write a book on the Second World War for a long time. <laughs> Um, and I hesitated to do it, partly because there are now so many books, mm. um, narrative books uh, mainly, on the Second World War, very good ones too, very good military histories. And I thought there's no point in me writing another book unless I could think about the Second World War and recast it perhaps in a rather different way. So what I've done, I hope, is to, is to put it into a context which will surprise some people, I think, um, get them to think about the conflict again. Uh, and that seemed to me the only justification for writing a book like this. The other thing is that the literature on the Second World War has exploded in the last 20 years. There's a huge amount of material on subjects about which we knew nothing virtually uh, two decades ago. And if I'd written this book even 10 years ago, quite large parts of it would not be well informed. So I'm grateful to see you know, there's a huge research community at the moment which is engaged on such a wide range of interesting subjects in the Second World War. And so I wanted to bring all that together. Um, difficult to do, even in 870 pages. Um, but that was that was my idea, really, to get not just the military history, but to get people to think about all those other things, whether it's economics, whether it's crime, whether it's you know how you justify war and so on and so on. So to that extent, if you like, it's... It's a report on you know, the way in which the history of the Second World War has been going. So as we start to talk about the content or the argument of the book, um, I'd like to start by asking you about one of the central claims. Uh, and in your words, the long Second World War was the last imperial war. That seems to be one of, if not the most important central arguments of the book. So, so can you unpack that? The long Second World War was the last imperial war. Well, I wanted to fit the the Second World War into a into a much longer context. Um, it's really the context of European global imperialism, which is a phenomenon that's gone on since the 16th century. Um, but it's been a central fact in world history for the last 500 years. As Europe expanded and expanded, destroyed other civilizations and cultures, took over large parts of the world, uh, subjected people to their rule. Um, it seemed to me that that to see the Second World War only in terms of the aftermath of 1919, the Versailles Settlement, the First World War, you know, war revenge by Hitler, etc., European-centered view, in other words, of the Second World War, um, it didn't make entire sense of the the range and nature of the conflict. And so I, I wanted to put it into that context, particularly the imperialism of the second half of the 19th century, which is when most of the rest of the world was was taken over. Um, and to look at the way in which European states and Japan, I might add, um, in the early 20th century were deeply affected by that experience of imperialism. Um, and it went on as well the Second World War. After the Second World War, we can argue about whether there's a Soviet empire, an American empire, and so on. Uh, but that's not the kind of empire I'm talking about. I'm talking about territorial empires, people subject, peoples. Um, and it seems to me that that 500 years came to an end in 1945. We now live in a world of nation states, for better or worse. Why, if you, 
you argue, I think, that the axis, to, to use that word, the, to Italy and Japan and, and Germany, go to war not to conquer the world, but to carve out an empire similar to those of their opponents. How did they understand what it meant to have an empire and why was it so important to them? Well, I think it was very important to them uh, because they drew on the traditions of the late 19th century where the d- development of uh, a more mature sense of nationhood everywhere uh, in the developed states um, went hand in hand with thinking about empire, uh, that to be a great power was not just to be a nation, but was to be a nation empire, like the British, like the French, well, like the Dutch, of course, uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese in the past. Um, and this idea of the nation empire, the empire is a way of defining the nation as, an, as a nation that, you know, deserved to colonize other people, that deserved to have an empire, that needed to be at the center, civil, be the civilized center of an uh, imperial system. Um, and that this was taken on board in all three axis states. Uh, I mean, early on, even before the First World War. Um, it matures in the 1920s because of their frustration with the outcome of the First World War. Um, and, um, and then in the 1930s, they see a window of opportunity opening up after the uh, the, the economic crash, um, the growing isolation and separation of powers, the collapse of, you know, of some sort of international order. And that the only way they were going to be able to um, compete effectively and become and remain great powers was to have their own territorial empire. And that's what they set out to achieve. Um, talk about British and French policy in the 30s in response to German and Italian and, and Japanese expansion. Uh, and you argue that it should be, we should use or think about this using the same frames and, and kind of terms that we talk about with the Cold War of, of containment and deterrence. Hmm. So how, why do you think those are the appropriate ways of understanding the responses to German and Italian expansion? Well, I mean, a normal word is appeasement, of course, and I've never been very happy with appeasement because it seems to me to be a reductive term which um, avoids having to confront what was really going on in the 1930s. Britain and France in particular faced uh, innumerable problems. They were overstretched global empires. They lacked the the military means to be able to defend those empires effectively. Um, And so they had to balance their risks. It was also an age when, you know, they they had to pay attention to domestic opinion. They needed economic stability. Uh, The mass public on the whole was opposed to the idea of going to war again, like the First World War. Um, And so there were a great many things they had to juggle around before they could actually confront um, the the Axis powers. Nor was it clear quite what their ambitions were going to be. Uh, I think it was only um, by 1939 that it became clearer. But to cope with that threat, they did use containment. They tried to find ways of limiting what the uh, Axis states were doing or were capable of doing. Um, They did hope to deter by rearming heavily in the second half of the 1930s. In fact, it's often overlooked or completely forgotten. Um, And they did think, even in 1939, that when Hitler threatened Poland, he would be deterred, that they would find a way of showing him that their resolve to go to war if he attacked Poland, and that he would back down because, uh, you know, it it was a a fragile system, fragile dictatorship, weak economy and so on. Um, And under those circumstances, the most likely thing was that he would be deterred. They were wrong. 
and Hitler was wrong because he thought they were not going to uh, oppose him over Poland. He thought that they lacked the will or um, uh, facing too many problems themselves uh, to really obstruct his drive to empire. So those two misapprehensions resulted, of course, in the outbreak of war in September 39. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you argue that, um, that it's British and French decisions that led to a regional war, not German decisions. So why, why did they decide at that point to, to draw the line and to, to go to war? Well, a number of things. First of all, public opinion was beginning to swing behind the idea of confronting particularly Germany much more forcefully. Uh, secondly, they were much more effectively armed by then than they'd been a couple of years before. Uh, also, I think in the in the end, they calculated that it was better sooner than later. Uh, they had no idea how strong Germany might become, um, but they did think uh, that the balance of power in 39 was enough to declare war, and they wanted to wage a war like the First World War, to you know, bottle Germany up, blockade her, wait till their economy weakened, uh, bomb her from the air, uh, and then at the final moment, three years later, they would defeat her as they'd done in 1918. Um, so there were quite a number of factors that, that made them think that you know, September 39 was the best time to wage war. But the real problem, of course, was that they were locked into that confrontation in uh, March uh, 1939, when Chamberlain guaranteed Poland. He did so in a panic because uh, intelligence information told him that the Germans might be likely to attack at any time. And so he gave the guarantee to make sure that you know he could lay down a marker. Having laid it down, of course, um, he, he uh, you know, did not want in the end to dishonor himself by abandoning that commitment. So in combination of uh, contingent facts and um, you know, growing Anglo-French power uh, persuaded them that this was a war uh, that they needed to wage, a war that they would win. And this is, as I've kind of constructed this series of questions, a pretty typical way in a world civ or a Western civ, you would, in the 10 or 15 minutes you had to talk about this, construct this. But, but I don't want to ignore the fact that Italy and Japan were simultaneously or in parallel, I don't know what the right word is, also imagining and attempting to implement an imperial vision. Um, so I wonder, uh, in, in turn, how, does, how did the Italians understand their effort and why, how did they see them working themselves working in tandem with or in parallel with or separately from German, Germany? Well, they, they wanted to see themselves, of course, as, as autonomous, not reliant on Germany. Uh, but Mussolini, for a long time, had uh, harbored the idea that Italy was what he called a proletarian nation mm. facing the plutocratic powers. Mm. And that to become an effective um, great power um, and to develop a more effective economic zone, uh, Italy needed to dominate the Mediterranean, North Africa, East Africa. Um, recreate perhaps the old Roman Empire at some point. Right? Um, and, and so Mussolini's vision is a little different from Hitler's vision. Uh, he thinks that Italy has an historic right to this area, that the British French have intervened for too long, that they're decadent or decaying powers. And the moment is right now for Italy to develop her own territorial empire, her own economic bloc, um, and join, if you like, the club of great powers. So Japan, Similarly, or is there something different about Japan? 
Well, Japan actually shares, shares quite a, a number of assumptions, I think, with both Germany and Italy. I mean, they, uh, you know, they're increasingly hostile to the West, the Western democracies, who they see blocking everybody everywhere. Um, Britain not allowing anybody else to have an empire, even though she has you know, an empire that covers a third of the globe. Um, a, a strong sense that, you know, Japan, Japan is regarded as a racial inferior. Uh, they have a you know a right an historic right to dominate East Asia, and they you know explore all kinds of ways of explaining this. Even going back to the idea that you know that thousands of years before Japan was the leader of Asia, um, but they wanted this to be you know uh, uh, an area dominated by Japan on behalf of Asia, uh, and not an area still subject to the interests of the United States or the colonial powers. And so, like Italy and Germany, a strong sense of resentment against the existing world order and a strong sense that, that they deserved an empire um, and that they would construct it, uh, if they could, without opposition. That in the end, as one, one, one Japanese diplomat said to uh, a British diplomat, you know, why is it all right for you to uh, dominate India but not all right for us to dominate China? You know, they thought that, you know, fair is fair, we ought to have a slice of a global cake, if you've got one. I think in many ways, at least for many of the post-war histories, the German defeat of France seems so rapid and so overwhelming as to have been inevitable. Um, is that your view? Was it, was, it a, uh, was it unlikely that Germany would defeat France so quickly? Was it likely? How do you imagine that? Well, everybody thought it was unlikely. Um, and the British and French, of course, were confident that they got the right strategy. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the victory is a turning point, a key turning point in the war, key turning point in undermining the old global order and creating circumstances in which a new one is necessary. Um, it wasn't inevitable, but German operational skill, uh, tactical um, capabilities um, and also among my dad the enthusiasm of their forces because unlike the British and the French you didn't really want to fight mm. you know many many people didn't want to fight a war again a major war again after the first world war but a great many young Germans were buoyed up with resentment against you know, Versailles how they've been treated about you know the British and French intervening with them yet again etc etc and so there's no doubt that you know there's also quite a strong moral argument there that you know the Germans felt they had things on you know that they had right on their side and that they would teach the British and the French um, so all those factors contributed to what everybody regarded as a as a extraordinary victory in Moscow and in Washington it was a startling a uh, piece of news. In both cases, I imagine the war would go on much longer. Uh, even that Britain and France you know, ought to prevail against Germany because, you know, they, in the end, they have more resources, economic resources, and so on. Um, but the German victory um, can easily be explained. Um, and once it happened, you know, it, it did begin the process of turning that global order upside down. And we don't obviously we don't have time to walk our way through every strategic decision in the war, but I do want to linger just a little bit on this period after French defeat. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about German and British imagined visions for how the war would proceed and what, what options did they see for themselves and what kind of strategies did they select? 
Well, it's an interesting question, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in, in both cases, of course, one can see there's a good deal of uncertainty on both sides. Um, Hitler's not sure whether the British will see sense as he sees it and, you know, reach an agreement with him, not surrender, but reach an agreement with him, um, in which he respects the British Empire and so on and builds his European empire. Um, but then he can't decide whether the best thing, in fact, is to is to give up that idea and bash the British first before uh, moving east to the Russians. Uh, but then he's not got much um, enthusiasm for that. You know, submarine war, the bombing of Britain are all designed to try and force Britain's hand, you know, get Britain to agree to come to the conference table. But he's not confident either it's going to work very much. He doesn't really want to go to the Mediterranean and help uh, Mussolini, but he's forced to do so in the end. Uh, you know, he really thinks now he's defeated France, now he's dominating Europe. He can now complete that vision of a territorial empire in the East, which he talked about in the 1920s, talked about in Mein Kampf. Um, and it's that vision, he, I mean, he, it's not a vision he could easily have in 1939, but in 1940, with the changing circumstances, I think it opens up this idea that he can now actually have this great Germanic empire that he's always dreamed of. Um, and he begins to shift further and further away from the idea of confronting Britain um, in favour of confronting the Soviet Union. But Britain, um, Britain doesn't really know what to do. And it's quite interesting, if you look at the discussions in the summer of 1940, there's Churchill saying, well, what can we do? What can we do? I know we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll try subversion. Uh, we'll, let's try bombing them heavily. Um, uh, let's blockade them. Um, but none of those strategies have any remote chance of working in 1940 or in 41. Um, and the priority for Churchill and his government and for the military leadership, of course, is to defend the empire. But how do you do that now? Now Germany dominates Europe. Um, the threat from Italy, the threat from Japan becomes sharper. Um, there's a real problem, I think, facing the British of you know, where their strategic priorities lie. They hope that America will help and America does a bit, but not a lot. Um, they hope they can defeat Mussolini quickly, and at least that will, will make the empire more secure than it was. Um, but there is a great deal of uncertainty, and for the next two or three years, they don't really engage the Germans. For the next two or three years, they're fighting, um, well, they're sometimes fighting the French even, but they're fighting the Italians and the tiny German contingent in North Africa, and hope that somehow or other that will provide some kind of strategic window onto the final defeat of Germany. But there is no way they can defeat Germany. You know, they can only do it with Soviet and American um, um, intervention. The Soviet intervention, of course, is forced. Um, the American intervention in the, in, in the European war is maybe not. So, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about why Japanese leadership decides it's essential to engage America and then a little bit about why the American response is not limited to the Pacific, but includes Europe as mm. well. Mm. I think, I mean, the, we know because of Japanese calculations in 1941, again, they're very, I mean, very uncertain. They go up and down during the course of a year. Um, and they've wanted to avoid, if they can, conflict with the United States and hope that they can resolve the China. Uh, quagmire um, uh, and move down and seize the resources of Southeast Asia. Um, but it becomes clear to them with the um, growing sanctions 
American sanctions against Japan, uh, the threat to what remains of Japan's oil supply, uh, but they can't go on making war, actually, unless they make war. I mean, the real paradox. But what they think is that, the, first of all, the Americans lack, will lack the will to fight a big war. They lack the means, of course, in 1941, but they'll lack the will to fight a big war against the Japanese once they've established their uh, imperial perimeter. Um, and that they will reach some kind of compromise with the Americans. And that's a, a view which has sustained in Japan for quite a long time, that somehow the Americans will, you know, they, they will prove in the end to be paper tiger, and uh, you know, they will come in the end to a conference table as well. The same, actually, the same delusion that Hitler has about Britain. Um, it, takes, it takes them quite a long time before they realize what a serious enemy the United States is going to be. Um, for Roosevelt, there's a real problem because he's focused all the time on Europe and Hitler as the main threat. He really does think that Japan can be kept at bay uh, by sanctions and threats and so on, moving the Navy to Pearl Harbor from uh, from uh, the West Coast. Um, but he doesn't really pay much attention to it. But the difficulty is persuading Americans to come into the war against Europe. Uh, well, as we know, uh, a, a sizable chunk of American opinion is in favor, but a very, very large chunk is not. Um, and it's a moot point, really, whether by the spring of 42, without a Japanese attack, whether Roosevelt could really have brought the United States into the war. I mean, lend-lease is, is everything short of war, as we can see today with Putin accusing NATO of fighting its proxy war. Um, but actually committing the United States to war is something that he wrestled with all through those final months in 41. And then Hitler takes the decision out of his hands. Uh, I mean, it couldn't have been more welcome for Roosevelt. Not that Roosevelt liked war, uh, but he could see that, you know, the only way to restore um, a, an effective global order in Europe and in the uh, Pacific and Asia was going to be for the Americans to, in, you know, to become involved. So I'm really struck by the reality, and it underpins much of the rest of your book, that all sides fought under the assumption that the entire population was part of the war effort. And thus, the entire population could be understood and treated, often treated, as combatants. So how does that happen? That's maybe not unprecedented, but it's certainly mm. a, a, a change in the way warfare was conducted from the 19th century. Yeah. How does it happen that that view developed? Well, it's completely different from the First World War. That's, I mean, that's clear. Um, it really was a war of armies. Um, I think there are a number of factors that fed into that. Um, I think the main one really is the the growth of, um, uh, uh, well, particularly for the for the West, the growth of the democracy, a sense of citizenship in which. You, you know, everybody has an obligation as a citizen to to take part, not to feel separate from the war, as if the war is something conducted by um, elites and the military. Uh, that, that that sense of civic responsibility um, can be expressed in the end by joining civil defence organisations, or in the case of Europe, of course, becoming part of the resistance. Um, the other thing I think is ideology. Uh, a strong sense on both sides, actually, that that um, you know that this is something that has to be done. You have to confront and destroy fascism, 
particularly powerful idea in the Soviet Union. <clears throat> but in the Axis powers, a strong conviction that they are under threat from the West, that they will be annihilated, um, and that therefore everybody has to take part in the do-or-die defense of the, of the nation empire. Um, and in the case of Germany and Japan, but not in the case of Italy, in the case of Germany and Japan, a lot of people buy into that, that, you know, the West has, with you know, now with Stalin's help, uh, planned somehow to annihilate these states and to deny them their birthright, and that therefore the only thing to do was to fight to the end, bitter end, in the hope perhaps that something might happen, of course, you know, that the Allies might fall apart and, you know, you, the war situation might change. The only difference is Italy, where the public hadn't much liked the violence of the 1930s, and Italy had been involved in violence almost the whole decade, um, and the cost it meant. Um, and there was never a great deal of popular enthusiasm for the war from 1940 onwards. So, you know, this is the one case where the public isn't on board. Mussolini realises that, and he doesn't mobilise totally like the other powers, and he pays the price. He's overthrown this term um, moral collective can you say what you mean by that and why it's important to your argument well sorry i missed the beginning sorry, of the, the, the idea of moral collective and, yeah. and why it's an important part of your argument it's i think it is an important part i mean all all in all the states they, there was a sense that they were waging a just war a war that they could justify um and they could justify it to their publics um and they, they wanted everybody to buy into that idea so that you created what I call a moral collective in which in which everybody uh, is committed to the war effort, everybody is committed in a sense to each other, um, that the only morality is, you know, what serves victory, uh, even if that means doing some pretty unpleasant things on both sides. Um, and you try to hold that collective together through propaganda, uh, through you know, careful monitoring of opinion, uh, occasional concessions when it's necessary, um, you know, vigorous defense of the prevailing ideology, and so on and so on. But all kinds of ways are found to get people to think that they are committed to the war effort, should be committed to the war effort. And the people who aren't, in every country, I mean, even in the United States, the people who aren't are uh, pilloried and isolated, you know, treated really as enemies of the people, if you like. I've got, I think, a figure in the book where, you, you know, there are 20,000 denunciations to the FBI of Americans who uh, are supposed to be betraying the war effort. Um, in the Soviet Union, if you betray the war effort, of course, you end up, you know, shot. Um, you know, different experiences. But, but uh, you know, what they share, I think, is this idea that, you know, everybody, everybody belongs to the war effort. And everybody has something to contribute. Um, and, and we don't have time to talk about it in detail now. I'll just point out to the to listeners that there's a fascinating little subsection in a chapter of subsection in a chapter about pacifists and the way yes. states yeah. engaged with that moral uh, claim to have the right not to participate. So, um, well, I could add something on that. Yeah, actually. please. <laughs> I think I mean it's something which is left out of almost every history of the Second World War. Uh, but there were pacifists um, in the West. You could be a pacifist, and they uh, didn't suffer too much. Uh, in the dictatorships, you could be a pacifist and end up in prison or shot. Um, so that you know they took extraordinary risks. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who were sent to camps and hundreds of them executed, 
Um, even in Britain and the United States, you know, pacifists uh, were not treated well, um, but they were not shot. Um, and it is interesting that, that, you know, despite all the efforts to construct what I call this moral collective, all the pressures on people to take part or to commit, that, that there was always a faction that, that wouldn't submit to state power and wouldn't submit to the idea that war was the solution to everything. And I respect them for that. So, so the flip side of this, of course, is the perception that it is morally and strategically permissible and appropriate to target civilians, yeah. what we would now call civilians. So, so how much was this idea debated morally uh, over the war and how did that debate change? Yes, that's a very good question. I, mean, I should have dealt with that a bit more earlier. Um, yes, not only do civilians you know, think of themselves as participating, but by participating, they then become, of course, the objects of warfare. Um, now, you can see that happening in a, in a number of contexts, but the most obvious one is bombing. Because uh, you know, when you're bombing, you're killing civilians, and in large numbers. Um, and there isn't, I have to say, much moral anxiety about that. There's almost no discussion in the United States. Uh, there's a small um, opposition group in Britain hostile to the idea of bombing. Um, now, there's been a lot of moral discussion in the 1930s, how terrible bombing was, how you couldn't bomb civilians, how you know only more wicked Germans did it, and so on and so on. But in 1940, uh, uh, you know, among the military and political leadership, there was almost no discussion when the bombing of Germany began in May 1940 went on the entire war, uh, where they not only knew they were killing civilians, but eventually in 41, uh, developed a deliberate strategy aimed at civilians. Um, the argument, of course, always is that, you know, here are people supporting the war effort one way or another. You know, they're working in factories, they're working on farms, and so on and so on. Doesn't quite explain, of course, uh, the hundreds of thousands of women and children who died under the bombs on every front during the Second World War. But yes, and people's moral concerns were blunted. Um, you know, they adopted a moral relativism. What, what helps the war effort helps the war effort. And if that means the death of civilians, well, so be it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, if we win, we will be justified. That extends even, of course, to the dropping of atomic bombs, um, where there was no question, of course, that you were obliterating huge civilian areas and large civilian populations. Um, but as you know, Harry Truman famously said, you know, when you deal with a beast, you have to uh, treat it like a beast. Um, at that stage, moral relativism had almost disappeared. Really, I think it was just a question of do do whatever you have to do, and and, and don't worry about it. Um, and so you get bombing, and you get a submarine blockade, and other kinds of blockades. And as I read your argument, you, you you say that denying resources is is consistent. With the idea of total war but it's actually volume production and um sharing of military goods within alliances that that was the more important contribution to victory um so so what what is particularly in the west i suppose but in the soviet union as well how do they remember the kind of attempt to mobilize economically from World War I, and how do they either build on that or uh, 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 
learn from that uh, in a way that allows a kind of economic mobilization in the Second World War? Well, the Russians didn't learn much from the First World War because the First World War effort wasn't very good. Mm. Um, they learned a lot from the forced economic development of the 1930s, and that's what laid the foundation for the Soviet war effort. Um, and the Soviet war effort was a simplified war effort. You identified a handful of weapons which you wanted to produce in large quantities. You asked the United States for all the other things you couldn't produce, um, and, uh, and you went on from there. Um, in the West, the situation is different because in the West, there's long been this assumption that what had won the First World War was the blockade of Germany and Germany's economic collapse and you know social protest. And, and for a long time, it's always this thought that somehow or other the, the dictatorship was fragile and would collapse, just as Italy collapsed. And that helped to support the argument. Um, and if you bombed them enough, uh, if you, you know, well bombarded them with propaganda, uh, you know, eventually the the home front would crack, uh, but it doesn't crack, of course. Um, and um, in the end, uh, the Western allies rely on the United States' enormous economic power, industrial power. Um, and I do make the point that Lend-Lease, which tends to get neglected in many of the general histories because it's you know it's not very interesting or dramatic. But actually, it's uh, it's a critical factor in the uh, victory of the Allies, all th all three major Allies. Um, and without you know, what the Americans and the British have, of course, is the capacity to move stuff around the globe, which the Axis don't have. Um, and lend lease is one expression of that. Uh, but lend lease is a critical factor. Um, for all the effort of you know, restricting German production, it goes up three times between 1942 and 1944. Um, but what the British get is you know, a third of their military equipment. What the Soviet Union get is a, a huge contribution to their economic war effort, and so on and so on. So the scale or the success of economic mobilization is an important uh, cause for Allied victory, but, but also true is the way in which allied forces were able to effectively improve their fighting capacity and you talk about force mul uh, force multipliers so mm. can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what force multipliers are and how they played a role in an allied military success yeah i mean the force multiplier is, is either using technology or improved tactics um to you know, optimize your uh, capacity to fight um and there's no doubt that you know, the Germans and the Japanese uh, fought very well at the beginning of the war, better, in fact, than their enemies. Um, uh, so they felt they hadn't got much to learn. Um, but I argue in the book um, that there were a number of force multipliers which the Western allies in particular focused on, uh, but the Soviets too, uh, in developing effective um, uh, armor warfare and air support, um, in um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in developing uh, amphibious warfare to a high degree, uh, in the use of radio and radar, and uh, finally intelligence and deception. I mean, all of those they outbid the Axis. Um, now you can focus on other things too, and there are other other force multipliers one might think about. But I tried to identify four, it seemed to me, to explain how the Allies won and the Axis lost. Um, and I say in all four, 
you know, the, the Axis even had a lead at some point, um, but they lose that lead. Um, I talk about the learning curve, and I think what the Allies needed was a long learning curve, and they were lucky that um, uh, uh, by the midpoint of the war, the Axis was stuck. They couldn't really go much further. Um, and the Allies had the time to develop that learning curve and then apply it brutally at the end of the war uh, to reach a situation in which their fighting power uh, far exceeded that of their enemies. So you started this discussion talking about the war from a German perspective as an imperial attempt to create an empire that will um, elevate them to a position like that of England or France. But what I didn't ask you about was the way in which, or the extent to which this war was also conceived as a war against the Jews. So how does this, uh, the, this kind of ideological or moral understanding of the world, how does that shape Hitler or German decision-making? Well, I've I've tried in the book to integrate the Holocaust much more into the narrative than it usually is, um, because Hitler is waging two wars. He's waging war against the Jews, which is predicted from the early 1920s onwards. You know, you know there are two, um, you know, races, you know, destined to uh, fight it out, if you like, to destruction, Jew and German. Um, and when the war breaks out, he's you know convinces himself that the Jews have engineered it. Uh, in 39, then, you know, Jewish Bolshevism in 41, then Roosevelt, you know, in um, uh, surrounded by Jewish advisors. Um, somehow the Jews are always there. And so you have to wage war against the Jews and you treat them like an enemy. So you shoot them, you gas them, you machine gun them and so on. Of course, they're not an enemy in any sense. Right? Um, but this fantasy seems to me to be a very important one that linked to Hitler's vision of creating a German empire. You know, the Jews are going to obstruct. They, don't want, they won't want me to do it, but you know, I want to construct. And then what did he do? He built an empire in the area which has the largest number of Jews in the world. Um, so what you do about it, and cruelly what you do about it, of course, is get rid of them. Um, and I think that's not uh angle you usually see i think on the jewish question i mean but i think that you know uh he, he could expel them all from austria from czechoslovakia from germany and hope to do so eventually um but once you've got poland and then you've got uh the western soviet union under your control you've got five million jews um and so you know the opposite of his vision of a germanic empire is an empire full of slavs and jews um, now, the Slavs are going to suffer too, of course, but in particular the Jews, because the Jews are the historic enemy of Germany, and now you've got a lot of them living under your rule, so the only thing you can do in the end is to get rid of them. You can't push them beyond the Urals because of the war, so you exterminate them. You have a long chapter that in part addresses that, but as you say, it is interwoven into the narrative in many places. But you do have the, the chapter I'm thinking of, particularly talks about the way in which criminal behavior became pervasive. What we would think of as criminal behavior may or may not have yeah. been thought of that way. Why, why is that so in the Second World War? Well, it's a vast conflict. 
uh, involves millions and millions of soldiers on both sides. You know, it's impossible that there won't, of course, be criminality of some kind or other, whether it's simple looting or rape or whatever. Um, but the, the the difference in that chapter is is the section on race racial atrocities because um, that's what the Germans do, both of Jews, but of course also Yugoslavs and other Slavic populations. Uh, to blacks in the French army, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that seemed to me to need a, you know, a, a rather different level of explanation because the war crimes are often the product simply of a messy battlefield uh, and bitter en enmities between the two sides. Don't get that in the First World War. The French and the Germans don't hate each other, or the British and the Germans don't hate each other in quite the way. Uh, that people came to um, hate the Germans or the Germans to hate the Jews. Um, in Japan, uh, race also plays a part. They see the Chinese as, as primitive people, as second-class people, as pigs, as they commonly call them. Um, and that war is also, in a, in a very important term, a race war. Um, uh, and that produces a level of atrocity it's quite distinct in degree from the kind of criminality you find on the Allied side, except perhaps for the Soviet Union, which succeeds uh, in the years between 1939 and 1945 in committing most of the crimes which they then indict the Germans with in 1945. Um, nothing on the scale of the Holocaust, um, nothing on the scale of perhaps of, uh, of German counterinsurgency crimes and so on, but, but you know, for... for you know, the Red Army and for, for the Soviet citizens, you know, almost anything is permitted, really. You've got to win. You've got to drive the fascists off Soviet soil and destroy Hitlerism. Um, and that, you know, you do any way you can. Well, approaching the end of our time, kind of have two broad follow-up questions content-wise. And one is a follow-on with that, which is that I'm as, as we all are watching events in the Ukraine. And one of yeah. the really distinctive parts of this is the way in which uh, deaths of civilians on what compared to World War II is a very tiny, tiny scale have created a kind of immense outrage appropriately, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm struck by the way in which the kind of attitudes you just laid out toward what is permissible behavior on and off the battlefield seem perhaps to have changed at least when at least in parts of the west after the war i want to be careful because of course there are many uh moments uh around the rimland of asia and, and and the middle east where that is perhaps not true in the cold war but i think most westerners think that have a different set of attitudes toward how civilians should be treated. How did that happen? Well, it happened after the first, immediately after the Second World War uh, with the revision of the Geneva Protocols and, and uh, the Genocide Convention um, and the Nuremberg Principles laid down at the United Nations. Uh, so a great effort was made immediately uh, to pedal back from what had happened in the Second World War, partly because people then understood everything the Germans and the Japanese had been doing, and they were horrified by it, um, and looking for instruments that might control that, or at least make it illegal, uh, was something which happened already in the 1940s. Um, 
But that didn't mean that civilians were not being mistreated or killed, even by Western states uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I think it's really only in the last oof, 20 years, 30 years, perhaps, um, that you know, sensibilities in the West have become such, you know, so much concern for human rights and so on, um, that the idea that you don't kill civilians in wartime deliberately, um, or even accidentally, uh, has become embedded, I think, in Western perceptions of war, um, and rightly so. And it is associated, I think, with the uh, development of a more a mature international legal system. Um, uh, and uh, this, this uh, prevailing interest in, in human rights. Also, of course, the media, um, because in the Second World War, the media were not there reporting it. Uh, now, every violation is on your screen in, in two hours. And I think that's made a huge difference when people actually see uh, civilians uh, being um, murdered or abused. You know. oh, this goes back perhaps to the Vietnam War too, and you know, this historic photographs of atrocity. Um, but it really seems to be matured really only in the last 20 or 30 years. And now, um, every armed force in the West has a body of doctrine about how to avoid damage to civilians. I have to say that it hasn't always worked terribly well, um, but it's there, um, where for you know states in the Second World War, there really you know there weren't many rules, um, and if you thought that breaking them would help you win the war, you broke them. The last chapter of your book by saying that the most significant geopolitical consequence of the war was the collapse within less than two decades of the entire European imperial project and the establishment of a world of nation states. Um, that is, of course, as you argue, what Roosevelt laid out um, in his vision for the war. Why does it happen? Should we be surprised that that happened? I well, after the Second World War, I don't think we should be surprised. I mean, I think the European empires were going to unravel anyway at some point, clearly, because uh, the, the growth of national uh, nationalism um, and insurgency goes back to the 20s and 30s. It's already happening, um, and it's suppressed. Um, so that even without the Second World War, eventually the empires have unraveled in some form in the 20th century. But this accelerates it because they lose all legitimacy after defeat of the Japanese, after the struggle to you know, get these places back, after demanding a huge amount from India, uh, not giving much back. Um, holding on to these areas is clearly going to be very difficult. In the case of India, the British just say it just can't be done. You can't militarily hold India, so we'll have to give it up. Uh, in the case of Palestine, they try to hold it and fail. Uh, Malaya, um, Kenya, um, they find themselves fighting vicious counterinsurgency uh, campaigns and so on and so on. But that can't be sustained either, nor in Algeria. So it is, I think, inevitable after 45 that the empires will, will unravel um, you know, either rapidly or, or slowly. Um, but by the mid-60s, it is all over. Um, and that does seem to me to be an, you know, an extraordinary break point from what's been going on for the previous three or 400 years. And it does open the way to creating that world of nation states, you know, the 190 something states now represented in the United Nations.
but the truth is, well, we can't possibly cover it in, a, in an hour. And I encourage listeners to go out and read it and enjoy it and read it carefully and learn from it. I always end interviews with the same two questions, one of which is, uh, you've obviously read an enormous amount in getting ready for this. You're, you're aware of the recent scholarship. What should what should listeners or what should I read? Do you have a suggestion of one or two books that you think is important that, that it's the beginning of the semester? I have no papers st stacked on my desk to grade. I should take advantage of that. Do you have a suggestion? Um, well, there are a couple of books. Um... I mean, one of the most important, I think, was the book by Rana Mitter called China's War with Japan, mm. which was the first you know, attempt to produce an integrated history of that war, mm. published now, well, 10 years ago, I think now. Um, and it certainly opened my eyes to, to what was missing from so many general histories of the Second World War. Actually, China is often missing almost entirely uh, from that. And yet this you know, has opened the way to what we have now. We have a Chinese superpower. You know, and its roots go back to the struggle in the 1930s and 1940s and the defeat of Japan. Um, uh, and so that's an eye-opening book, I think a very important book. Um, the other book I would think about is perhaps something by the Oxford historian John Darwin. Um, he wrote a very interesting book called The Empire Project, which is about British imperialism, um, but also another very good book called After Tamerlane, which is a history of imperialism from well, covering exactly the 500 years that I'm, I'm been, I've been talking about, um, and that too, opened my eyes to the fact that somehow or other military historians and imperial historians were going on two different tracks mm -hmm. um, and parallel tracks, and that you know really to understand the Second World War, we need to put those two things together. Um, and, you know, his work's been quite an important source for me of understanding what empire meant across that, uh, across that period. Um, <clears throat> let me try and think. Um, the other thing, and one book actually talking, you know, talking about the Holocaust earlier on, also I found very impressive. There's a book by Alan Confino, which I'm sure you know, uh, World Without Jews, um, um, in which you know, he explores that very important question of, of how you know, Hitler and his anti-Semitic entourage imagined the Jews and what that then permitted them to do in the course of the Second World War. And there's a lot of stuff written, as you know, on the Holocaust, but, but this seemed to be a very insightful book, actually. Um, and it's probably one you've, you've already been discussing, I imagine. Um, anyway, there's three. Yep. I think that's good. And for listeners, if you're interested, uh, Alan has been on the uh, on a sister channel. So go go to the New Books Network site and you can listen to him talk about that book. I will look forward eagerly to reading the other two. Um, I was so the last question, and I know from our chatting before we started taping that that you're excited to continue your research project. What are you What are you working on now? Well, I've almost finished the next book. Um... It's a, small book. <laughs> yeah. it's a small book called Why War, which echoes oh. the, uh, the conversation between Freud and Einstein in, the, in 1931-32. Um, and uh, it's really a, a short book to present to a wider public what it is that you know, academics and others uh, are, are, are saying to explain you know, why war has been a constant feature of human history. You get away from the Second World War, but it hasn't got away from war. Um, and that's, yeah, that will be on your shelves, I hope, sometime next year. 
uh, about his new book about World War II. And so, Richard, thank you so much um, for taking time to talk with us. And I hope in the thank future you. we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank you.